Welcome to the pulpit ministry of Christ Community Church in South Florida, aiming to make, mature, and multiply disciples by preaching and teaching God's Word based on the sufficiency of Scripture. And now, let's join Pastor Bernie Diaz for the message. I want to tell you about a guy named Fred. Fred was a clerk in a retail store. I guess you can call him an associate today. And he was rude. He used to be rude to his customers and lazy in the store. I'm sure we've never encountered anyone like that. And on several occasions, his boss was about to fire him, but he didn't do it because he felt bad. If he did, it would really put his wife and children in a real bind were he to lose his job. And one day, a regular customer stopped in, noticed Fred wasn't there, and he asked the manager about him, where he was. And uh, he was told that he had taken another job. And the customer asked, well, are you planning to replace him? Manager said, no, it isn't necessary. Fred didn't leave a vacancy. End quote. Meaning, Fred's work was of such poor quality and the business was better off without him to the extent no one noticed when he was gone. And that should never be true. That should never be said of an employee, especially a good Christian. One good way to test the value of your work is to ask yourself this question as a Christian. If I left my job, would I be missed? Would I be missed? Would there be a a vacancy of sorts? So as we dig in here, we are in the Christian work ethic, part two of this short series we're doing, Finance Matters. We need to lay the foundation of theology, the, the theology of work, for a Christian, meaning before you get the details of how it is you are to work, you need to begin thinking about why you work. Does that make sense? Many people, even Christians, think we work because we have to, right? You have to work to make a living. Remember the old saying, I owe, I owe, so off to work I go. The Apostle Paul did say, by the way, in 2 Thessalonians 3, if you don't work, you don't eat. There's truth in that for sure. We are responsible to work, help provide for our families in some way, fashion, or form, right? That's, that's biblical for those of us that can work physically. If we're not disabled in any significant kind of a way, we are to seek gainful employment or be in the process of doing that, of preparing ourselves for a career or vocation by college, perhaps, a trade school, studying, that kind of thing. But... We do know all said and done work can be very tedious, drudgery, work. Even Solomon said so, and he had a lot of money. In Ecclesiastes 6, he wrote, All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. We talked about satisfaction last time in part one. We talked about the secret of satisfaction, right, that we're we're very dissatisfied with our work as much as anything else. And we think, you know, really work is just for food or so we can buy stuff, we can have pleasure. I remember a rock song from the 80s. Most of you would be too young to remember. Everybody's working for the weekend, right? In fact, the survey found 70% of people in this country often dream about doing something different for a living than what they're doing now. So again, it's an idea of discontentment or dissatisfaction, as we talked about last time. That time it was about money. Now we're talking about jobs. And the common idea that most people have, even Christians, 
The reason that we work is because of the fall. Is that right? Genesis chapter 3, if you turn there, you can just make a note to go there. You're following along. And if, by the way, if you need a Bible, raise your hand. We'll get you one. We've got extra Bibles in the back. Genesis chapter 3, verse 17, right? This is the reason why we got to have a job, right? God said to Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife. There's a red flag right there. Okay, guys. Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I've commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. So right there, Adam goes from being a gardener to a farmer. Tough gig. I want to give you a heads up. That's bad works doctrine. That's not why we work. The passage there says that the fall of man and sin would make work harder, more difficult, more challenging than it was meant to be. But work existed pre-fall. Work is part of the creation mandate from God and it's for good and godly purposes. Look back in chapter 2 if you're in Genesis and verse 15, which plainly says, the Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to what? Work it and keep it. You want to eat? You got to pick the fruit off the tree. And then twice towards the end of chapter 1, you get a little more of a sense of why from the beginning in creation man was to work. Man meaning mankind. Middle of verse 28 says that we would have dominion over the fish of the sea, subdue it over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. God said, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that's on the face of the earth. Every tree with seed, you shall have them for food. He's providing the elements, but you got to get the food, right? Verse 31 and God saw everything that he had made. Behold, it was very good. So the work is good. So then why do we work then if you don't have to? Are you familiar with a phrase called the Protestant work ethic? Ever heard of that before? You don't hear that phrase as much anymore. An ethic, by the way, an ethic is a moral principle. And Martin Luther and John Calvin, they argued in the mid-16th century that work was a calling where we get the idea of vocation from. That's what that literally means, that word. That was a calling from God. That work is really supposed to be a get-to and a want-to and not just a have-to. And that furthermore, all worship can be, all work can be worshiped to God. It should glorify God, right? Paul also wrote, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Well, that would include work because that's part of the whatever you do. And basically, this work ethic came forth in the Reformation because of the medieval Catholic system of thinking, and it was influenced by Greco-Roman thinking, even some first century Jewish thinkers, and they claimed there was this distinction between the secular and the sacred or the spiritual in work. For instance, the sacred work of priests, philosophers, poets, thinkers, that would be superior to the work of the blue-collar person doing menial tasks. And in fact, if you are aware of what's happening in our society today, the elites in media and academia tend to think the same way today. Not so 
according to God and his word. We don't work for our salvation, and we don't work for God's approval or his blessings on our lives, okay? We're all in Christ. All of us in Christ have been justified by what? Faith, faith alone. We've learned that. Christ did all the work in salvation, right? In fact, Gene Veith is a social commentator, and in writing about paraphrasing, as he wrote and paraphrased the Protestant work ethic, he said this, quote, all vocations are equal before God. Pastors, monks, nuns, and popes are no holier than farmers, shopkeepers, dairy maids, or latrine diggers. Peasants are equal to kings. All are sinful beings who have been loved and redeemed by Christ, end quote. And that is right. That is right. Housewife in this room today, your work in managing your home Raising your children is as valuable to God and as important to his kingdom in the great scheme of things as is the NASA rocket scientist, the biologist, the policeman, the politician, or the corporate CEO. Okay? This Protestant work ethic had an idea in the early 20th century that it was all about being the crux of, uh, of capitalism and markets and free markets. Whether that's true or not, that has nothing to do with what the biblical work ethic was taught by the reformers, okay? They had a doctrine rooted in scriptures, we're going to see in this text, that all work is spiritual. All of it can be. At home, the workplace, wherever it happens to be, your work is to manifest or show the fruit of your faith. Luther stressed this that a calling is not primarily what we do, rather it's about what God does through us. You know the prayer, right? The Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. How do we get the daily bread? Isn't it through the calling and the work of farmers, bakers, factory workers, the truck drivers that bring us the merchandise, grocery store employees that stock it, the hands that put all of our meals together, restaurant or at home, right? That's how we get our daily bread. It's people working. You pray for healing all the time, don't you? You pray for your own aches and pains, your family, your friends, our church family. We do that. How does God primarily get that done? Does he do it primarily with miracles, signs, and wonders? Not like in the time of Christ and the apostle. No. It can happen that way. It does on occasion, but the way people get healed today is by the work, the day-to-day -day work and calling of nurses, doctors, and pharmacists, people like that, right? Isn't that a big way, by the way, that you show your love to God by loving people, loving, serving neighbors? That happens primarily by our way of work, okay? So the passage here before us is in the context of Paul's rules and regulations about relationships. He's going to talk about the relationship in marriage, husband to wife, in Colossians and the sister letter in Ephesians. He's talking about the relationship of kids with their parents, parents to kids. And then here we have employer and employee. And here's something else about the Protestant work ethic that you're going to see here, which I think is lacking in a big way. Unfortunately, I think it's lacking in a big way with too many young people today. And that is, the Bible tells us Christians are to work hard. Work 
hard, to be disciplined, to be responsible and humble in our work. So in this text, Paul does this in two ways. Know your boss, know your pay, okay? Know your boss and know your pay. Let's talk about how you know your boss. We're in Colossians 3, verses 22 and 23. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord. As for the Lord and not for men. And again, I said in Ephesians 6, 5 to 8, there's a parallel there. In fact, it's like a sister church, a sister letter. And the difference in Ephesians, the emphasis, is we are to work for our earthly bosses with fear and trembling. Rendering service also with goodwill as to the Lord and not to man. But I don't know if the first word of verse 22 caught your attention here. It's pretty big. Bond servants obey in everything. Now, you might say, oh, this, this whole message doesn't appeal to me at all. This doesn't even relate to me because I'm not a bond servant. I'm not a slave. Most of you are not. And the Greek word doulos, that we get this word, did usually refer to the involuntary. Sometimes it was a permanent service of a slave. By the time the letter was written, in fact, slavery at this time was so pervasive, one out of every two people was a slave in the Roman Empire. And then for hundreds of years up to this period, captives in war, they were the primary source of slaves. And then you had people that were unable to pay their own debts, and they would go into servitude. They would volunteer to become slaves in order to have a way of repaying debts. Okay, And for the most part, this affected a lot of Christians. Early Christians, they would work for pagan masters. But this is what I want you to know. This is important. Unlike recent history in this country and elsewhere, slavery in Rome was not based on race or ethnicity. Anyone could become a slave, and nearly any slave could oftentimes become free at some point. So the best parallel, I say all that to tell you, the best parallel that we have for ourselves from this text in context today is employer employee, because slavery in the ancient times carried a lot of that idea, all right? And what's amazing here, it's, it's an imperative here. They are to obey, and that was still a huge challenge for slaves or laborers at that time because they were thought of as less than second-class citizens. Remember I told you about the Greco-Roman way of thinking in the empire at that time. They didn't have that many rights, some had good masters. They'd have challenging work. Most were given menial tasks to perform. And they would work long hours with little rest. And under the worst kind of slave owners, workers were often mistreated, if not abused. But yet, this is what's amazing, all of these workers, regardless, are called to submit and to obey in everything to their earthly masters or bosses. And that was a positive command, meaning do this. And then he gives a negative command, Paul does here in this verse. He says, not by way of eye service. External, that's the external, what you see at first glance. How? Not as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart. And that means from the soul, from all that is within you, just having a single-minded focus, fearing the Lord, that you are to work for that person. Now, what's a man-pleaser? 
I think you have an idea. There are popular idioms from that I'm not going to elaborate on other than to say, you know, brown noser, kiss up. That's what it is. It's the same word used in Ephesians 6. A more modern paraphrase kind of translates it this way. The idea to work not just when your worldly boss is watching you, but we work for God, sincerely, because of your reverent fear, your respect for him above all. You see, God is the boss above the heavenly one. Amen? Some of you may have a different take on this. You've had the attitude, you know, take it or leave it with your job. Your earthly boss, he or she may not be a Christian, may be abusive, may be difficult, unreasonable. All of that could be true. So what do you do? Some of you may think, well, I'm just going to goof off. It's not going to be my career. Or you give less effort. You do a little bit of man-pleasing. Here comes the boss. I'm busy. When I was young and working in retail, I used to do that. I worked in a men's clothing store. I'd start folding the clothes when the manager came by and undo it and do it again. Or the other thing you do is you quit. You go from job to job to job to job. Your resume is like a scroll. (laughs) Bible has a different idea. 1 Peter 2.18, that apostle said, Servants, be subject to your masters, or be submissive in authority, to your masters or bosses with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but to the unjust. Mm. Now, that's a tough assignment. I get it. But God's grace is enough, isn't it? It was a call for your external work to reflect your internal heart. Consider this. 1 Corinthians 7, Paul talked about the idea of not rushing to change your status in life, whether it be a career, a job, or whatever, when you got saved. You know, bloom where you've been planted. The idea from God was you don't have to just quit your job, uproot yourself just because you've been saved. 1 Corinthians 6 and 7, Paul makes the argument of staying where you are, whether he's talking about being circumcised or not, married or single, slave or free, good job or a good boss or a bad job or a bad boss. Didn't matter. You don't have to rush out of there. The key summary idea in Paul's teaching here is that our listening should always be God-centered, not man-centered. And God knows that you're in the tough situation that you're in in the workplace, okay? I mean that. Proverbs 16, not too long ago in our Bible reading plan, we came upon this. Talk about God's sovereignty, He knows where you work. He puts you there. Proverbs 16, 9, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Or verse 33, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. You're in a bad place. You're working right now. Guess what? God's got you there for a reason. He's giving you a new motivation here, not necessarily a new organization. So the fear here, by the way, you read, you are to work for the Lord, your your boss, your boss, with fear, fear and trembling. It's not a quaking, shaking kind of a fear per se, although it could be if you're willfully rebellious and sin with the Lord, but it's more of a reverential awe, respect, the sense of fear that you don't want to displace the God who made you and saved you. It's a sense of reality that one day you're going to stand before him at the end of the day in judgment, and you're going to be accountable to your words and your work as a Christian. So here's the idea. If you're more concerned 
with pleasing the Lord with your work, you don't have to worry so much about pleasing your boss. Even in the grind, whether slaves or masters, we work with dignity. And that's the idea repeated in verse 23. But the big idea is this. You are still a slave. You're a servant. But to who? Well, to Christ. We learned that in studying Romans 6. We represent him in the marketplace of our home. Either way, our highest work authority or boss is the master, Jesus Christ. We labor and receive rewards. In other words, you get the big raise ultimately from God, from him. So our work ethic, our labor, gives testimony to man, more importantly, glory to God with what you do. And again, the idea is to work as though the Lord is your direct supervisor rather than for people. In fact, Ecclesiastes 9 and 10, Solomon talks about just working with all that you've got, all you can. The late commentator Warren Wearsby said it this way really well, quote, a Christian worker ought to be the best worker on the job. He ought to obey orders and not argue. He ought to serve Christ and not the boss only, and he ought to work whether anybody is watching or not. If he follows these principles, he will receive his reward from Christ, even if his earthly master does not recognize him or reward him, end quote. Just a simple question comes from that. If God is your boss, shouldn't he get your best? God gave us his best when he gave you Christ, right? Spurgeon put it this way, quote, Charles Spurgeon, a short life should be wisely spent. We have not enough time at our disposal to justify us in misspending a single quarter of an hour. Neither are we sure enough of life to justify us in procrastinating for a moment, end quote. Now, that's a high standard. I will tell you this, I really am bothered by lazy Christians who do shoddy work. I really, that does bug me, because we should know better. We have the work manual right here. What kind of store clerk or what kind of mechanic, kitchen worker, or school teacher should you be? You should be the best. Why? Because God's the best, and he gave you new birth. Got quiet on that one. You know, but really, it's, it's really tragic when people have a bad opinion or view of Christians in the workplace or the Christian workplace. We've seen that too often. You want somebody that works well, don't you? Listen, if I need heart surgery in the future, I want to find the best heart surgeon I can, whether they're Christian or not. If the best heart surgeon in the world's a Buddhist, I want that guy or gal. I want somebody that's been in there and knows where they're going and what they're doing. If I want to travel from here to there, I want a trained professional pilot who's flying that plane. I don't want a professing Christian who's a loser on the job. Okay? We want the best. We should want the best. But here's the kicker. We should want to be the best because we got the best. And as significant and overlooked is the day-to-day -day stuff that we do to serve God in the workplace. I love the way Luther put it again. Quote, the maid who sweeps her kitchen is doing the will of God just as much as the monk who prays. Not because she may sing a Christian hymn as she sweeps, but because God loves clean floors. The Christian shoemaker does his Christian duty not by putting little crosses on his shoes, but by making good shoes, because God is interested in good craftsmanship, end quote. 
Amen to that, right? So verse 23 is commanding us to work hard because we're working first and foremost for the boss, Jesus Christ. So then now Paul's going to give us the motive here, the raise, the pay for our hard work in Christ. Know your pay. That's my second point. Back in the text, verse 24 to the end. Knowing that from the Lord, you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. You know your paycheck is from God, right? Romans 8, what is your paycheck? What's your biggest paycheck? Your big bonus as a Christian is what we call your hope in Christ. That is your inheritance. That's what Paul is writing here again. Your inheritance, all the blessings, rewards, the promises of being in the kingdom with Christ now in the new heavens and earth forevermore. By the way, I should tell you, you may not know this. Okay, when you get to heaven, the new heavens and the new earth, you're not going to be on some cloud with a white robe playing a harp. Work continues. You're going to be working. I'm going to be working. I don't exactly know doing what. Your, your talents, desires are going to be put to good use. There's going to be a kingdom on earth that needs to be administered and run. New heavens and new earth is a huge city. If you don't know that, read the end of the book of Revelation. It's got the dimensions. It's humongous. And there's going to be work to do there. But you know what it's going to be? Redeemed work. Perfect work. No more sweat, thorns, and thistles. But God wants us to work. So we're working for an inheritance now, a reward. Not that you're working for the rewards literally, but you're knowing in the back of your mind as you're serving others in the Lord that you're going to receive rewards. And you get that if you're serving him. That word serving has the the idea of obeying, submitting like a slave. Okay, But these rewards, let me tell you, again, they're biblical and they're spiritual. They're not always material. Sometimes they are, oftentimes they're not. Proverbs 11.18 tells us, one who sows righteousness gets a sure reward. But if you have the right perspective on work, you have the Protestant Christian work ethic, remember, God gives us all things to enjoy. Our toil will be rewarded now and forever, Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes 5.18-20. So, all that is to say... You get rewards, you're going to get gifts from God. What kind? What kinds? I'm going to give you three here if you're taking note. Three big gifts, rewards for your work. This is your pay. Know your pay. You ready? Number one, ministry. Ministry is a gift or a reward. And there are scriptures that I've referenced here you can check on later, but the literal word for ministry, so you know, is the word service. And it doesn't just mean in the church. Or around the church. If we are obedient to God, if you're loving your neighbor as yourself, all of life, including our work, is about serving or ministering to others in one way, shape, or form. We can know, we can know and share Christ by the way we work. We can show others in the church, do ministry to them by the way we work, the way we talk about our work. Let me give you an example. If you turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Paul wrote this letter to this church. They were consumed by the idea of the rapture, and they were going to miss it. The Lord was going to come, the day of the Lord. 
people that passed away in the church, what's going to become of them? What's going to become of us? Some of them were idle. They were taking it easy. They weren't working because they had heard stuff. The Lord was going to come any moment. What's the point in working anyway? Uh, we should be able, you know, be able to go out and evangelize. Listen to what Paul says with that in your mind as a context. 2 Thessalonians 3.6. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness to do nothing, slothful, sluggard, lazy, and not in accord with the tradition that you've received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you. Why is that a big deal? Verse 8, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. And it was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. Paul is showing the Christians in that church in Thessalonica, work like I'm working. That's the Christian work ethic. It was a big deal because Paul is a preacher of the word, a church planner, and an apostle. 1 Timothy 5 and other texts tell us Paul didn't have to work, didn't have to take a job in the marketplace because of his work in the ministry and the churches were to support him. So Paul's saying, I have the right not to have a job. But I have a job. He was a tent maker, we learn in the book of Acts. I have a job because I want to show you the Christian work ethic. I want to show you work is a good, valuable God-glorifying and honoring thing to do and often necessary, all right? So this is ministry. We are to be an example. We are to be a model to one another in the church family with our work and with our ministry. Here's the second gift you get for work. Maintenance. This is pretty obvious. Maintenance. Sustenance, okay? Providing for one's needs, three hots in a cot, okay? This is God's chosen gift to give us to be able to work for a living. If we're able to work in a role that is part of supporting a family, maybe, if we're not the direct breadwinner, that's working to maintain itself. I think often of the Proverbs 31 woman. Paul put it this way in Titus 2. He's talking to Titus to train the people in the church, and he says, so train the young women to love their husbands and children to be self-controlled, pure, working at home. I, I, if I said this in public, I'd get like fruit being thrown at me right now. Working, at, I, I'm just the messenger. I didn't write the message, okay? Working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands that the word of God may not be reviled or shamed, put the shame. Again, the idea here is that women's work at home is as valuable and as essential as anything she could do outside the home. And I'm not speaking here to women that are single moms, and they have to work outside the home to provide for their family. And I'm not talking about mothers or women that have to work alongside with their husbands to help support their family. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a wife and a mother of young children at home who can fulfill that responsibility at home because that's God's best for families. He created family. He knows way more about it than we do. This is his plan. But you're still playing a role for the ladies at home in helping cut costs, manage the home. You're the CEO of your home. That's how I've always thought of, of Madi at home. She runs it. She's like the executive there. 
So you got maintenance, you got ministry, here's your third gift and work from the Lord. Meaning, meaning, there is an intrinsic meaning. There's worth, there's dignity in work in and of itself for the Christian. It's true. As long as you don't worship it, work can be fulfilling. It can meet the desire that we have to achieve goals and objectives as human beings. God made us that way, to strive, to do better. You know, I, again, I praise God for those of us working in the medical field, labor hard, and they create and give us, by God's grace, new and better medicines every day and skills. Like we have a couple of brothers in our church, and they're technicians in a hospital giving tests to diagnose whatever conditions we might have. A lot of those brothers, a lot of sisters, a lot of people have that kind of work because they just want to better mankind. They want to serve mankind. It's a good thing. No matter. Whichever one of those gifts matter the most to you, I just gave you three, there's more. And they all have worth, they're all meaningful. The idea is to work hard. God is our first and best example. Do you know God's a worker? Did you know that? What do you mean God's a worker? You go, well, yeah. That's why we have a day of rest. And he, in fact, in the Ten Commandments, he is the example of it. In Exodus chapter 20, Verse 8, just as a reminder, God said, remember the Sabbath day, day of rest, keep it holy. Six days you shall labor. By the way, that's a, that's a new concept for a lot of people too. Monday through Friday, my week's over, five days of work. No, God said six. You may have to do work someplace else or at home in another way, but there are six days of work. And do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your livestock, or the sojourner, the foreigner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made. He did. That's activity. He worked. The Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that's in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Now, the Lord didn't get physically tired. We talked about this in our last series right back to the beginning First life, God doesn't get tired. The Father is spirit. He just speaks and preserves life by the word of his power. However, he's doing, he's moving, he's in action. That's work. And he is our example. We know he did that with creation, with providence. You know, that's the facet about God that is most fascinating to me. I've said this many times before, is omniscience, and his providence. Right now, God is actively working in the circumstances of 7.7 billion people on the planet at the same time. Right now, God is doing something in your life. At the same time, he is moving in the life and the most uttermost details of a person in a hut suffering in the Sudan. That just blows my mind. God is a real great multitasker, Okay? And do you think Jesus worked? What did he do before his ministry? He was a carpenter. He was a laborer. He labored big time. You think he labored big time as the Messiah, the redeemer of your souls? John chapter 4 gives me a great reminder of the Lord's work when he said to people questioning him, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Will and work. 
Chapter 5, verse 17 in John, Jesus answered them. He, he dared work. He healed a man at the pool of Bethsaida on the Sabbath. And they're questioning him like, whoa, how could you work? And Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. Jesus was a worker. God's a worker. By the way, so you don't get the fact that, you know, we're not trying to be legalistic here. My son, for instance, among others of you, has to work today, later. There is responsibility sometimes to work on the Lord's Day, Sunday. And if you're especially in the retail trade or the restaurant trade or the movie theater, whatever, you have to work often on Sundays, and God's okay with that, all right? The idea with the Sabbath, which is, by the way, the only commandment not repeated as an absolute in the New Testament, that's for a reason, what God is saying is take a day, take a day if you can, to worship the Lord, to be thinking about the Lord, and to rest. That may or may not be the Lord's Day Sunday. And if you are in a job situation, as we always tell them with their schedule, if you can get Sunday off to be with God's people to worship, amen, that's even better, okay? But if you have to work Sunday, you have to work Sunday. Take a day to be with God, all right? So Jesus worked for your salvation, didn't he? Didn't I say that? All the work was done by the Lord on the cross. Do you think the cross was a little bit of work? Right? He told the apostles this when they were kind of freaking out that the Lord was going to eventually leave them and they were going to work on their own. And he said this in Matthew 5, 12, Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Work. Know your pay, church. Know your pay. In fact, those of you who are more senior among us, more adult, I'm going to give you another shocker. You know what the Bible says about retirement? Nothing. Zero. Nada. Bupkis. I'm going to work till 60, 65. And as Piper puts it, I'm going to go to the beach and collect shells Look at my pretty shell collection. Or I'm just going to be on a boat and yacht and go fishing. That ain't about the Lord. Too much work to be done. It's too much ministry to be done. Are you kidding? Ain't nothing about that. You know who knew that? Who was a hard worker? Died before he could retire. Mr. Rogers. Remember the old TV show, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood? Some of you may have seen a trailer. Tom Hanks is going to star in the biography of Mr. Rogers. It's going to come out in the fall, around Thanksgiving time. But Rogers had a special understanding of his ministry and his work. His widow told a journalist this, quote, I always remind people that he was an ordained Presbyterian minister, and his work was his ministry. And he loved his work. My, did he love his work. That's what makes me sad about losing him, because I think he would have worked for a long time more if he could have, yet he accepted that with all of his heart and was ready to go to heaven, end quote. If you're mature and you're no longer working in the workplace today, I've got all kinds of things I can share with you on how you can do ministry and keep busy and work. You just come see me, all right? You may feel that just Older or younger, your work is just secular or church ministry is the only work that's spiritual. It's not. That's not what the reformers said. That's not what the Christian or the Protestant work ethic is about. When you honor God and people, you're blending together service to the Lord 
that makes much of him. So again, to our more mature folks, stay youthful. To stay youthful, stay useful. Rogers, Mr. Rogers, knew that. By the way, the psalmist said, quote, Psalm 92, 14, the righteous shall still bear fruit in old age. Lots of stuff about that. And the pay is going to be worth it. Again, we just close with verse 25 at the end of our text, Colossians 3.25. Paul wrote, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality, or that means God is no respecter of persons. Whether you're rich, poor, you're the boss, you're not, you're going to get what you're due in more than one way. I mean, folks, imagine if quality and productivity could so increase at the workplace, if we people return to a Christian work ethic, what would that do for the glory of God, his name, and the cause of Christ? What would that do in reforming, redeeming part of our culture and society in America today? I think it'd be awesome. So beware. This is like Paul's warning in verse 25. Our ultimate final payday is going to come from God. And guess what? Those people pleasers in work, all their life is going to be repaid. They're going to get what they deserve. You know what you call that in one word? Justice. God's big on justice. And the Bible from Old Testament to New Testament tells us our lives, our lips, our work is going to be judged. And if you're an unbeliever, oh, on Judgment Day, Romans 6.23 says, and the wages, that's the word actually used, the wages, the payment for sin is what? Death, eternal separation from God. That's condemnation, that's hell. That's what this last verse of this text is implying as well. We are accountable to our boss above. But remember again, no amount of work can earn salvation. Work is a fruit, is an outgrowth of your heart of what God's already done in you in Christ. It's just gospel. We're justified by faith alone, by Christ alone. Work had to be done. Christ did it all. He paid the price for people that believe in him. So as I close, if you're in Christ in this room, I hope you've kind of appreciated more the Christian work ethic and the new meaning your work has. You get gifts, rewards, you know your pay, and you know who your boss is, who you're ultimately working for. He is there in your workplace looking over your shoulder 24-7, 365. Appreciate that. I like the way Haddon Robinson put it. Quote, your work may be tedious. You may have an employer who doesn't appreciate you or pay you what you're worth. You may want to quit, but you are working for Christ. Do your daily work so that your master in heaven can one day say to you, good job, well done. Well done, faithful servant. Amen? Those are the best words you want to hear at the beam of judgment seat. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the teaching of the Holy Spirit. We thank you that we have this Christian work ethic laid out for us clearly in Scripture. We thank you, Lord God, for the opportunity to be exhorted to be encouraged, to be pushed, to do our best because you gave us our best, because you are the best. Lord God, we can work for our good and we can work for your glory.
may our work take on a new character, a new look, not just for men pleasers, when we're in the workplace and whatever we're doing at home or away. Thank you, Lord. And for those not in Christ today, as we move to the Lord's table, the Lord's Supper, we'll talk about in a moment what that means and what that means to their work and what that means to their spiritual lives. We thank you for this opportunity, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name and God's people said. Christ Community Church is a God-glorifying, Christ-exalting, and Bible-centered body of believers who love God and love people by making disciples of Jesus Christ. For more information on our ministry, please visit our website at www.christcomchurch.org. That's christcomchurch.org.